Amen. While we're at the midpoint in our study in the book of Romans, 16 chapters, we've done eight, we're now in chapter nine. And uh, so you've got the uh, notes in your bulletin, some blanks and spaces in the bottom for you to take your own personal notes. I just want to remind us um, of the last two verses of chapter eight. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we thank you for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit upon men to record every word that we have. And these uh, writings in the book of Romans, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher. Reveal to us the truths that are appropriate for each one of our lives as individuals and as a church together. We thank you for your word. We ask for your assistance and help, Lord, for we need you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting to note, as Romans chapter 8 ends, that Paul is building this crescendo. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of on this I hesitate to call it a high, but for lack of a better term. As I said last week, Romans 8 is probably one of the um, greatest chapters in the Bible. And Paul builds it to a climax. He's, he's excited. He's, he's soaring. He says, absolutely nothing can ever separate me from the love of God. He's in this place of total exaltation. You can almost imagine... Many, I guess we all have a certain amount of imagination, but you can imagine the Apostle Paul being so excited about the love of God and, and the transformation in his own life and how it doesn't matter what's come. And he listed all the things he's gone through, shipwrecks and stonings and beatings and all these kind of things. And nothing's going to separate us from God's love. And then there's this chapter 9, there's this dramatic change in moods. It's almost... Incredible. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, you remember in the original, there were no chapter divisions. So he's going from nothing's going to separate us from the love of God to I'm in deep anguish and sorrow. Unceasing anguish in my heart. What happens? He goes from the mountaintop to the valley in one verse. What a dramatic change in moods. What caused Paul to be so sorrowful and anguished in his heart? He's concerned about the salvation of his own people, the people of Israel. Paul obviously was a Jew. He was deeply disturbed. His heart's breaking. It seems like he can't hold back the tears. In verse 3 he says, I could, For I could wish I myself accursed... Cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those my own race, the people of Israel. Now the Israelites had rejected Christ as the Messiah. Paul's heart is breaking to the point, he says, paraphrase, it's like he says, I can honestly say with a clear conscience, I'd be willing to go to hell if it would put the Jews in heaven. 
That's an incredible transformation from chapter 8 to chapter 9. Now, we know he's just said nothing's going to separate him separate from the love of God. And, and we know, it, you know it, he's, he's not given up his salvation, but his heart is so burdened, his heart is so broken. I mean, that's the epitome of compassion in my book. Where he says, I'd be, I'd be willing to give it all up for my people, the nation of Israel, to find Christ as their Messiah. His heart was breaking to the point. Can you imagine saying, can you imagine yourself saying, I'd be willing to go to hell if it would get you or your sibling or your child or your parent or your grandparent or your neighbor or your co-worker if it would get you into heaven. Wow. Then he says, I'd be willing to be separated if it would get my kinsmen, my nation, my people, the Israelites into heaven. What a dramatic change. I'm sure there's some here this morning who are grieving over a wayward loved one. And I join you in that. If that's you, then you know how that anguish is always there beneath the surface of your heart. You might be enjoying yourself sort of outwardly, and you may be at peace in many ways, but it's there. It's like a deep knot inside. Knowing that from all intents and purposes, there's somebody you know who has not yet given their life to Jesus Christ and accepted what he did on the cross as far as you know. Not sure if there's anything more devastating and more deeply felt than the love and concern of someone who sees another drifting into hurt, drifting into destruction, drifting into danger, despair, perhaps even death, and are helpless to do anything about it. It seemed to be the Apostle Paul's position. His anguish was so deep that he says if it were possible, he'd be willing to take their place in hell if only they would find Christ. In the next section, God uses his relationship to Israel to teach us some spiritual truths about himself. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter and the upcoming chapters. Romans chapter 9, verse 3 says, where he says, I wish I would be cut off, a curse for Christ, by Christ for the sake of my brothers. Chapter 10, verse 1 is not on the screen, but it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1, he says again, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. His heart is totally filled with compassion for those who don't know Christ. Seems like in chapters 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, Paul has Israel on his heart. It's probably, this section may be one of the most debated portions of Scripture. Scholars have studied and debated this for years and years. I don't think anybody has all the answers to the full interpretation of these three chapters. A lot of great minds have studied it and still come out confused, and there's disagreement about Israel's place in history. But I want us to look at these verses, not so much for what they tell us about Israel, but what they tell us about the nature of God. What they tell us about what God is like. And the central theme of this section is on how God's plan for the Jews illustrates and demonstrates his character. In chapter 9, we have Israel's past. 
In chapter 10, we're going to see it's about Israel's present. What's happening to Israel now? And in chapter 11, it talks about Israel's future. What's going to happen to them? More than that, we have an illustration of how God relates to Israel in the past, the present, and the future. And we learn about three aspects of the nature of God. In Romans 9, we learn about the sovereignty of God, why he chose Israel above all nations to be his people. In Romans chapter 10, we're going to see there that we discuss we have the fairness of God, how God gives all of us the opportunity to be saved. And then in chapter 10, or chapter 11, we see the faithfulness of God. And we're going to look at the sovereignty of God as demonstrated by his relationship to the people of Israel. So I want us to look at it. What does it mean to be the chosen people? Interesting debate. Had that debate the other night with a, with a Jewish person. Um, what basis did God, on what basis did God choose Israel? And then I think there's some points that we can apply to our own lives on a regular basis. The Bible says that God chose the nation of Israel to be a nation set apart from every nation in the world. Why? And how? And what difference did that make? And how did that make Israel special? In verse 4 and 5, we have some introduction on how Israel was different, and Paul lists eight special privileges that the Jews were given by God, and you can jot these down if you want. They're not on your notes, nor will they be on the screen, but... Now, the first one in verse 4, he says, The people of Israel, theirs is adoption as sons. God says, the Jews are going to be my people. They're going to be different from all the other races that I created. They're being adopted as my sons. Secondly, he says they had the divine glory, and that's a privilege. Remember the glory of the Israelites? They were crossing the wilderness. There was a pillar of fire by night, a bright cloud by day that led them. And that was the glory that represented that God was present with Israel. Later, when they built the tabernacle, the cloud filled the tabernacle. We know the stories. And when they built the temple, it filled the temple. And God's glory was Israel saying, was was God saying to Israel, I put my presence with these people. He goes further in Romans to say, theirs were the covenants. The covenants were the agreements God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. These were all the things God committed himself to do for the Jews. It says they were given the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments. God's word was given to the world through the nation of Israel, the Jews. They were given the temple worship. God specifically spells out in detail how all of his people should worship and the sacrifices they should make, the offerings they were to give. They were given the promises. When you read the Old Testament, you find a lot of promises to the nation of Israel. Verse 5, they were given the patriarchs, the great leaders of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the greatest blessing of all in verse 5 is, and from them was traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. The greatest blessing of the Jew is that they were given the privilege of being the race that the Messiah would come from, the Savior of the world, Jesus, was a Jew. The Jews, when they were chosen by God, got special advantages, and so he listed eight of them there. They were given this tremendous advantage and blessing. Why? Why were they given all these things? Why did God spread it out? Why didn't he spread it out a bunch of nations? Why the nation of Israel? Why did God choose to do all these things just for the Jews? So he could play favorites? No. So they could brag on their position? No. Why did God choose the Jews? Well, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, 
The very first, first covenant God made with Abraham. This is what, when God called Abraham to leave his hometown of Ur. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. God says, I'm, just, I'm not just going to bless you, but I'm going to make you, the upcoming nation of Israel, I'm going to make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. It's amazing. I was going to Google it and do some research and I thought, no, I'd be here for a lot longer than I, my history shows right now. Of all the things that the nation of Israel have given to the world. There's an amazing amount of discoveries and inventions and medical breakthroughs and all kinds of things where they've been a blessing to the world. God said, I'm going to bless Israel, not just so they could just sit around and say what lucky folks we are. God gave the world, or the word of, to Israel, and they were going to be missionaries to the rest of the world. They were to pass it on. God says, I'm going to give you all these things, and you're to spread my news everywhere. You're to be my missionary task force all around the world. The only problem is, they failed miserably. The Jews, when they received all these things, rather than saying, let's go share it, it's almost like they said, aren't we great? And they held on to it. They kept it to themselves, and they didn't spread the word. We got it. You don't. Tough luck. Totally missed the point of why God called them as a nation. Later we're going to see how God had to take the message away from the Jews and he gave it to the church so that it would get spread. And he says to the church, now you go into all the world and spread the news. So God gave it to the church and said, now it's your task because the Jews did not spread it. God sent the Messiah through the nation of Israel and then they rejected the very Messiah Israel was given all these things, not just to be blessed, but so they could be a blessing. Galatians 3.8 says, The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. God told Abraham right from the start, I'm doing these things not just so that you realize what great privilege you have, but I'm giving you all these blessings to the nation of Israel so they can spread the word. The good news, the message to everybody else. And Paul says, we were given the gospel in advance to pass it on. To be God's chosen people meant that God chose them to be a blessing. And as a result of being a blessing, they'd be blessed in special ways themselves. That's how the Jews were God's chosen people. Now, I'm not trying to get into some debate on defining the word chosen and one nation over another nation. I'm just trying to demonstrate to us here the character of God and the reason and the things that God wanted to see happen through the Jewish nation. Now, as we look in, Jew, in, in the future, we're going to see that it returns again to the Jewish nation. But right now, they, they failed it, and so God raised up the church. Now, what is the basis that God chose Israel? Why did he pick out the nation of Israel? Were they bigger? Were they more intelligent? Were they a better-looking nation? Why? Paul gives us four principles why God chose the nation of Israel those principles apply to salvation. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. Salvation is based on God's grace, not race. 
Salvation is built, is built and established on God's grace, not our race. Paul is saying just because you had Jewish parents didn't automatically make you a child of God. It wasn't based on physical descendancy. Salvation is based on grace, not race. Not based on who your parents are, what your ancestry is, who your family tree goes back to, your background. Not because they are his descendants. Aren't you glad you're not saved on the basis of your race? It's not race, but grace, Paul teaches all through Romans. Romans 2.28. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. What makes you a child of God is not your external ceremonies and religious symbols, but your internal condition of your heart. Isn't how many times you go to church? Even though scripture tells we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but even so much the more as we see the daily approaching. I don't know how much money you give to the church. It's about your relationship of your heart with Jesus Christ. It's all about the heart, Romans 3, 9. What should we conclude then? Are we better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike, are alike all under sin. Verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too. Yes, of the Gentiles too. Paul is making this very clear. Romans 4.16 So therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, those of the Jewish descendants, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, he's the father of us all. Romans 10.12 For there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Racial Israel was composed of believing Jews and non-believing Jews. Whether you believed or not, you were part of the race. But real Israel, Paul says, was believing Jews and believing Gentiles. They make up the real Israel. What saves you is your faith and not your family. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm a Christian because my mom was a Christian, or I live in a Christian country? It's interesting. I was listening to talk radio the other day, and um, um, Rob Breckenridge, who's on QR77, I don't know if you ever listened to him, but he, he really got me upset. I hope he listens to this thing online. Anyway, somebody called in and they, they said that, you know, Canada is a Christian nation, it was founded as a Christian nation. And he began to argue and say, no, it's not a Christian nation. I wanted to phone up and say, just go to Parliament and look up on the Parliament buildings and you'll see scriptures inscribed on Parliament buildings. Go to the Constitution and check the Constitution, what it says at the very beginning of the Constitution, that we are a nation under God. Anyway, some people say they're a Christian because they belong to a Christian country or their family or their grandfather was a pastor or whatever. I want to tell you that God does not have any grandchildren. He's got children. Children. What saves you is your faith and not your family. Salvation is based on grace, not on our race. Secondly, salvation is based on God's promise, not our preference. Based on God's promise, not our preference. Eight and nine. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. He's given the illustration of Abraham back in Genesis 21. Abraham had two sons in the beginning. The first was Ishmael through Hagar. Sarah couldn't get pregnant. She said, take my handmaid and have a baby through her. So he had this son named Ishmael, and Ishmael was 13 years older than Isaac. 
But Isaac was the miracle baby. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was in her 90s and said, no way can we have a baby. That's why they named him Isaac, because they laughed, or Sarah laughed. Sarah didn't believe because she laughed. If she believed, she would have cried when she heard she was having a baby at age 90. Some of you would cry for a different reason if you were having a baby now at age 90. But there, there, there should have been this excitement. But, but she, you know, was hesitant, whatever. Abraham said, Ishmael, and God said, no, that may be your preference, but he's not the child of promise. Might be your preference. The miracle baby is Isaac, and he's the one who's going to be the father of many nations. And verse 8 says, the children of the promise. Salvation is based on God's promise to save us, not our preference. We would prefer to work. We would prefer to earn it. We would prefer all these other ways. It's on promise. Thirdly, Paul says salvation is based on God's providence, not our performance. Verse 10 to verse 13. He gives us another illustration of Jacob and Esau. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, the father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Twins, baby boys. That I thought, just one, okay. Twins, baby boys, and traditionally, who gets all the privileges? First or second born? Firstborn. Any firstborns here? According to the Bible, you get double the inheritance, right? Um, don't hold your breath on that, but anyway. Um, so Esau born first, then Jacob. God picked Jacob. Not because he proved he was better, but God picked him before he was even born. Now, he came out grabbing the heel of his brother, remember? And uh, God said, I'm going to make Jacob the father of the nation of Israel, not Esau. One only could be the father, so God chose Jacob. God chose him before he was born to point out that he doesn't save anybody on the basis of their works or their performance, or what they do. God made the choice simply on the basis of his own providence, his own decision. He's sovereign. Last I checked, he's still God, amen? He's still absolute ruler and authority. Verse 12 says, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's it's, but... By grace you're saved, not through, or grace you're saved through faith, not by works. If you and I can be saved by working for it, can you imagine what heaven would be like? Everybody would be up there bragging on how they got there. I did this, I did that, I did way more than you. You slouch, how did you get here? Heaven would be more like hell. It'd be terrible. Everybody would be bragging. So God selects a guy, even before he was born, to use just to prove that it's not based on earning, not on works, not on something you deserve, based on God's providence. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. Now isn't that a strange verse? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Did God really hate Esau even before he was born? Please understand, one interpretation, or one um, principle of interpretation of Scripture is, 
always study the context, find out why it was said in relationship to the verses around it. This verse, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated, is really a quote from Malachi. Many people have taken this verse and they've gone off on this doctrinal tangent. God just automatically chooses to love some people and automatically chooses to hate some people. You ever heard that? God chooses to love some and to hate some, and you know, this is how it's going to work out. Malachi was written 2,000 years after Esau and Jacob had already died. And by this time, Jacob and Esau and their names were referring to the nations that had grown from, over, from them over the past 2,000 years. The nation of J- Jacob was called Israel. The nation of Esau was called the Edomites. So he's referring to two nations here. Not two individuals. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Notice on the screen. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? But the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've turned his mountains into wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now Paul didn't quote the whole verse. He stopped At the first part, he left out the part that says, I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Malachi is putting down, calling condemnation down on the Edomites, the nation of Esau, for their wickedness. The nation had gone bad. They were mistreating the Jewish nation. The condemnation here, when Paul quotes that he's not saying, I chose to love one individual and chose to hate the other, Paul is simply using this verse as a scriptural backup to say, look what happened to these two guys 2,000 years later. One was a nation of Israel, God's people. The other had gone off into adultery, fornication, idolatry, and wickedness. What I believe he's saying here is the context demands that this isn't a reference to Israel as an individual. God isn't saying, before Esau was born, I hated him. I don't think the verse supports that at all. It's a verse from Malachi which is talking about the nations and how God was condemning one nation because of their wickedness. The word hate is simply a word of contrast. It's the same word that Jesus used. If anyone wants to follow me, he's got to hate his mother and his father. Now, that doesn't, that's not, that's a contradiction of what Jesus said in the, in the law. We're to honor our mother and father. We're to honor our parents. Did Jesus mean you ought to hate your mother and father? No. Jesus was quoting the Ten Commandments. Jesus meant when you follow him, he must have preeminence. He's got to be number one. Our love for him must be so great that everything else looks in relative terms like hate. Jesus was saying, I want to be number one, first place in your life. And friends... He's still saying that. I want to be number one. Number four, Paul says in Romans 9, using Israel as an example, salvation is based on God's mercy, not our merit. God's mercy, not our merit. So to illustrate this, Paul uses another Old Testament illustration. Pharaoh and Moses. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Salvation does not depend on your and my effort or our performance. 
It depends totally on the mercy of God. If it weren't for God's mercy, none of us would make it. None of us. Titus says in chapter 3, verse 5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to mercy he saved us. Now consider Moses and Pharaoh. Why did God choose to use Moses? God says he did it out of mercy. Moses was a murderer. I mean, he was... But God says, I'm still going to use him. Just because I'm merciful. Then he talks about Pharaoh. Pharaoh unknowingly was a part of God's plan. Even though he didn't want to cooperate, he still fit into God's plan to show the greatness and glory of God. Every single one of the plagues made fun of an Egyptian god. Every one of those plagues was a joke on an Egyptian god. For instance, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile... God turned it to blood and desecrated their God. Another one, the Egyptian worshipped frogs. God gave them frogs. Every one of them was a joke on one of the gods of the Egyptians and that they set up and the whole world heard about it as a result. And God was glorified even in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God still received glory from that. The normal reaction to this, when we understand that God's salvation is based on God's mercy and not our merit, and it's really his work, his choice, The natural reaction is this. If everything depends on God's sovereignty, what happens to man's responsibility? If it's all about God's sovereignty, what happens to our responsibility? How can I be accountable if God pulls all the strings and I don't have anything to do with my salvation? How can God blame me for anything? It's not fair for God not to let me do something and have a choice. And here's man's objection. So Paul anticipates the question. Notice verse 19. One of you will say, why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? I mean, if God already has everything planned out, I'm just a pawn, I'm just a puppet. But who are you, a man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out Make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. Just like the potter can take a piece of clay and the potter has the right to shape it any way he wants, God is our creator and he has the right to shape our lives. How many times have we stood in front of the mirror and said, boy, I sure don't like my crooked nose. I don't like that. I don't like this. I don't like the other thing. I wonder if we were to stand physically before God and say, God, I don't like the way you made me. I don't know. I don't think any of us would say that. We'd be on our face. Thank you, God. You're so awesome. It's because of your mercy that I can even stand in front of you. Now, I'm not against, like some gal in Bible school told me when I asked her why girls put on so much makeup and she said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. I'm not against, you know, Whatever, you know, it's all great. But what is our conclusion about the way God made us? Who am I to question God? And I see in this a message of hope. If we mess up in our lives, the master, get this now, the master potter can take that marred vessel and reshape it, and he can bring good out of bad, and he can turn it all Around. Look what he did to Paul or what Saul 
knocked him flat in his blessed assurance on the road to Damascus, and turned his life around and made him one of the greatest apostles and wrote the majority of the New Testament. He can take our shattered, messed up lives and turn them around. Paul gets into some deep speculation here, as I said. This is one of the most debated passages in Scripture. I'm going to try and make it as simple as possible, because I'm just simple. But it's full of all kinds of things theologians have discussed for centuries. Verse 22, Paul speculates. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also for the Gentiles? What if God wants to create people just to be criminals? What if? Does he have a right to do that? Paul is making a supposition here. He's basically saying, doesn't God have the right to be God and do whatever he wants to do? Everything we have belongs to God. I'm not saying that God's making criminals and not making Paul is just speculating. It says, those prepared for destruction. Technically in the Greek, this means they prepared themselves for destruction. But some people take this passage in essence say, God plans every little detail in the world and there's no freedom or there's no responsibility and therefore I have no choice. It's just inevitable. The natural extension of this is that makes God the author of all sin. And who can blame God then? The reason I killed that person, the reason I stole that, God made me this way. When this is pushed to the logical extension and say, God is responsible for everything, then he's the author of all sin in the world. Yet James says, when somebody's tempted, don't say God's tempting me. Because God doesn't tempt anybody. God is not the author of evil. Friends, he's not. I think all of this is, is pretty heavy for us to fully understand. And Romans 9 raises a lot of questions. And integrity, my personal integrity, demands that I say to you, I don't, and I don't think anybody has all the answers to Romans chapter 9. But I think I can summarize what Paul is trying to say in this chapter in one simple sentence. Four words. Top of your outline. Let God be God. Let God be God. He has the right to do whatever he wants. God is not on trial. We're not to figure it all out. If God were small enough for me to figure everything out about him, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. Right? He'd no longer be God. He'd be just like us. There are some things we just can't figure out. People invariably always ask the question, if God is such a God of love, why are people dying of starvation around the world? If God is such a God, why? If God is such a God of love. Well, we can go back to original sin, we can go back to all kinds of arguments, but friends, let's just let God be God. You don't have to defend God. He's big enough to do it himself. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and verse 9, is a good commentary in Romans 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There are some things we're just not going to understand about the plan of God. Because they're on a different level. Our knowledge is limited. God is infinite in knowledge. We don't see the total picture, but he does. Somebody once said, you can lose your soul denying the sovereignty of God, but you can lose your mind trying to understand the sovereignty of God. We, don't, we won't understand it all. Some people might understand it more than others. In my mind, I cannot reconcile how God is ultimately sovereign in life. And yet also I have a responsibility in life, and God's going to hold me accountable. It's like, okay. I can't reconcile those two, but the Bible clearly teaches both. So as a pastor, I'm trying to maintain my integrity. I have to teach both. Because they're both true. God is sovereign, and man has a responsibility. Man has a choice. If we didn't have a choice, we'd be robots. God does have sovereignty over all of our lives. He knew we would be saved even before we were born, the scripture says. But the scripture also teaches that I do have a choice and that I do have some freedom. And I'm going to be held accountable for the choices I make in life. Just because God knows everything and he knows who's going to accept him and who isn't does not negate the fact that the person still has a choice. Because that person doesn't know. Neither do you or I know. But God has to know everything because he's God. The one thing I do know, God says, Roy, Holmquist, have I loved. Put your name in there, you know for a fact. His love is unconditional. It's not based on our ability to earn it or to deserve it. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What does all this say to us? Because I'm at the conclusion, now you are shocked that it's not even noon yet. What does this say to us? Chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, Paul, who understood the doctrine of election, predestination more than any other person, he wrote the book. Notice his attitude toward the unbeliever. I speak the truth. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I want them to be saved so badly. I'd be willing to go to hell if it would get them into heaven. What is the depth of our concern for people who do not know Jesus Christ? What is the extent of our actions towards the people who do not know Jesus Christ? Some people would say, well, if God chose some people, he must have chosen other people to go to hell. The Bible doesn't teach that. No scripture in the Bible teaches that. There's some great theologians who believed it, but I don't find a a single passage that teaches that. Paul himself says, just because I've got my ticket to heaven, 
doesn't mean I can say, who cares about anybody else? I'm going. Sorry. We need to be concerned for our friends, our loved ones, our relatives, people we don't even know who don't know Jesus Christ yet. We shared at the beginning of the year our vision 10-1-10 that in the course of 10 kilometers of the church tens of thousands of people live. In fact, just in the 10 communities in Ward 1, it's in your bulletin, over 80,000 people. If we were all to witness and share our faith with one person, just one, in 2017, and they came to faith in Christ, and then we discipled that person, and then that person and ourselves, and the next year invited one, then the next year, those three invited one each. The next year, those invited one each. In the course of 10 years, you couldn't hold the people in this building. To what extent? And I challenge myself, friends. I challenge myself. To what extent? Roy, to what extent are you going to see your neighbor on the one side who just moved in, to the neighbor on the back who just moved in, and the neighbor behind who's just moving out, and a new one coming in, to the neighbor next who they just went through a divorce, and these two people are living together, and these are living together, and none of them are really professing Christ. Two homes over are some very dedicated um, Catholic people and who profess a deep love for God. To what extent will you and I go to reach the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ? Would you in your heart this morning pray a thank you prayer and express gratitude to God for his great salvation, we could say, God, your saving me was based on grace and not on my race. You saved me because of your promise, not because of somebody's preference. You chose me on the basis of your providence, not by performance. And I thank you, God, that your salvation is based on your mercy and not on my merit. I could never, ever deserve it. And Lord, help me to let you be God in my life. You have the right to do whatever you want in my life. And all you want me to do is cooperate with your plan and your purpose. And Lord, I want to stop trying to figure it all out. I just want to trust you. Lord, give me a burden. Give me a burden for my neighbor. Give me a burden... For my children, give me a burden for my siblings. Give me a burden for the people I work with, those I go to school with. Lord, give me a burden. Such a burden as the Apostle Paul has who said he would give it all up. To see that person come to faith in Christ. What are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up a night of leisure? Are we willing to give up Whatever. You see, 
God had chosen Israel to be his spokesperson in the world and they didn't do it. Then Then he chose the church. I'm not here to condemn the church or I'm just saying we as a part of the church, how are we doing with the call of God in our life to share Jesus Christ, the greatest message the world could ever hear before they die and go to a lost eternity? Say, Pastor, you're getting way too heavy here. I came here to be encouraged. But maybe you've got children in your family who haven't come to that point of commitment yet. Commit yourself to even more prayer for them. Maybe skip a meal, whatever. Praying for those. Maybe you have a wife or a husband who hasn't made their commitment to Christ. Maybe you have a mother or father or relative or close friend. The Bible says that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Paul said, the burden of my heart is that I want my loved ones to know Christ. I want my nation, my, the Israel, my people. I know I, I say, Lord, increase the burden in my heart as Paul had. I never want to be afraid or ashamed of the good news. Help us to realize that the Lord gave us the good news, not just for our benefit, but to share it with others. Friends, we've got the good news. Not to hang on to it, but to share it with others. Right, Charlie? It's the passion of your life. Others here, it's the passion of your life to share Jesus Christ. I just want to encourage you from what the Apostle Paul is giving here. Let's not shrink back. Because the church is the Lord's final plan. There's no other. I'm not saying the church building. I'm saying the body of Christ. And friends, I want to encourage you this week. When you go out these doors and you're exiting into the parking lot, you're now entering the mission field. And it's white, ready to harvest. We've got the greatest news. Let's not keep it to ourselves. And I'm not saying you're not. I'm just encouraging me too. Let's even do more so. Share the greatest news we've got. Jesus Christ gave his life. Every single person. Doesn't matter what race. Doesn't matter who they think they are or they aren't. Every person. Amen? Father, I thank you for your word. And friends, as I pause here right now, I wonder if there's anybody in this building and you have not completely given your life to Jesus Christ by saying, Lord, not only do I want you to forgive me of my sin and I repent and confess my sin, but I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be number one. I want to be your servant. I want to be your messenger. Maybe you're here this morning, you haven't completely committed your life to Jesus, invited him into your life to forgive you of your sin. And you'd say this morning, Pastor, you'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. 100%.
as much as I can. And you'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to commit my life to Jesus this morning. I want him to forgive me of my sin. I need him. Thank you. Well, you're here this morning, you say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've got my ticket. I really haven't been following through with my God-given responsibility to share the greatest news there is for God called us church. To share the news, the way we live and how we talk and our actions. And you'd say this morning, Pastor, would you pray for me? I just want to pray that a prayer of dedication this morning saying, Lord, however you want to use me, help me to be available. Strengthen me. Let my resolve be, yes, Lord. Here I am, send me. You'd say, I need God's help to be that person. You'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, will you pray for me? I, I really want to be that person. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Father, I thank you for the numerous ones in this room who are already committed. They're doing, Lord, every opportunity, majority of the time, they're following your leading and your direction, and they're finding such great joy in sharing about the one who gave his life for them. And others of us, Lord, we can do a little better. We can allow you to use us and Yeah, we blow it, we make mistakes, and we stumble, but Lord, we really want you to be number one. Help us. And help each person here who, either with an upraised hand or a cry in their heart, have indicated something to you and your Holy Spirit. Lord, will you richly and abundantly anoint your people? Help us, O God, that Lord, you're number one. You're number one. Help us to see with new eyes, feel with greater compassion, pray with greater intensity, purpose. Willing to sacrifice and give up whatever you call us to do. That somebody may hear the greatest news they'll ever hear. Lord, bless your people. I thank you for each one of them, their attentiveness today, their willingness to come and worship you and listen, participate. And Lord, we're so grateful for our salvation. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance on you, and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.